Good morning. Good morning, CBC and anybody else who is tuning in today. May the 31st, 2020, it's hard to believe that it's been 12 consecutive Sundays since we have last gathered together physically due to COVID-19 and everything surrounding that. I am excited on the one hand that this is, Lord willing, the last Sunday that we're going to be doing this kind of live stream meditation and not gathering in some fashion. We plan beginning next Sunday, June 7, to be, begin having, excuse me, outdoor services at the YMCA at the Mission Party Health Campus in Arden. That's the building where our church normally meets. We will be meeting outdoors rather than indoors indefinitely just due to limitations and restrictions around COVID stuff. And so all are welcome, all are invited beginning Sunday, June 7, to the YMCA at the Mission Party Health Campus to join us on uh on Sunday mornings for gatherings. So we'll be doing those at 10 a.m. Uh, we plan to. We're working hard as a staff to prepare for everything that uh, we need to be aware of and, and ready for to have those services outdoors. It's kind of a, a new thing for us, so you can even pray for us as we aim to get ready. There will be a lot of information heading your way if you're a member of CBC or a regular visitor and you're on our regular email chain. You'll be getting information this week about the particulars of the outdoor services. Uh, the emails will come. There will probably be some videos posted and the like. If you have any pointed questions, though, you can always reach out to me or to Mackenzie. We would be happy to try to answer any questions that you have. If you are willing and able to volunteer in any way to help with setup, with greeting, with parking, with anything that pertains to the outdoor services, we would love to know that. So you could email us um, that as well to, to let us know that you're, you're ready to jump in and help. So I look forward to seeing a number of you next Sunday, and I'm really glad that this is the last Sunday I'll be setting up a camera like this in my office to, to teach God's Word this way. Before we make our way to the Bible, and before we, we consider Matthew 11 today, uh, I want to pray for us and for our land in light of things that have been going on this week. And, and obviously there are things that have been going on in our land for a long time that have given rise to the events of of this past week. I know that I can speak personally for myself, just broadly with respect to our country, our land, our society. I can't remember a week where I have been more burdened or more distracted or more grieved by, by things that I see, by things that I'm reading, things that I'm hearing. Um, it's been a, been a heavy week, a lot of reflection, introspection, a lot of prayer, uh, tears, and I know I'm not alone in that, the events of the past week, perhaps in a pointed way, are evidence of what sin has done to us and has done to our world. And it's heartbreaking, uh, to say the least. So if, if you would, if you're watching, you can join me uh, as we go relatively briefly, but sincerely to the Lord in prayer and ask him for his help and his mercy and his grace uh, in these days and in these things. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus, covered in his blood and standing in his righteousness. And, and we pray for those who are grieving uh, in this time. We pray especially at, at this moment for the Floyd family and the things that they must be feeling, the pain that they are experiencing. We pray that you would comfort them. We pray for all who have had loved ones unjustly killed, where the events of this week have probably brought those things back to the surface. And they are experiencing, no doubt, all kinds of pain and suffering of their own. 
And so we pray for those individuals that you would comfort them as well. We pray for those in our own community, our neighbors and our friends who fear that what happened to George Floyd may very well happen to them. We pray that you would comfort them. We pray that you would protect them. We pray for law enforcement officers in our church and broadly. We pray that you would give them courage, that you would give them restraint, that you would give them wisdom in these difficult days. And we pray for their protection too. Keep them safe as they aim to keep us safe. Father, we pray perhaps above these other things and in and through these other things that you would heal the divisions that exist in our society. They are, they are deep. They are intense. They are raw right now. So we pray for your grace and for your mercy that you would work to tear down the walls of hostility that exist in, in our land and in our society. We pray for justice to reign in, in our land. We pray that justice would be something that all men and all women of all ethnicities would know. We pray for our leaders that you would give them wisdom in these volatile and difficult days. And we pray for peace um, in, in America. We pray for compassion toward our brothers and sisters in the church and toward our neighbors more broadly. We pray that for us in our interactions with others, that mercy and compassion would make room for answers that we are not expecting. We all have planks in our eyes, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. We pray that you would remove those so that we might see more clearly. We pray for charity with one another and that you would open up avenues for conversation and greater understanding amongst especially your people in the church. And we pray that for our land more broadly, but most especially for us with our brothers and sisters. We pray that we would talk honestly and kindly and charitably, that we might understand one another better. We pray for us that you would work in us by your spirit, that we might love our neighbors as ourselves, as you instruct us to do. We pray that the gospel would go forth and that you would bring people to faith in Christ, because we know that the gospel is the only real answer for the sin that is in us and for the hatred that we all at times have towards our fellow man. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ and only your Holy Spirit taking up residence in us can do anything meaningfully about it. So we pray that the gospel would go and that people would trust Christ. We pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth even as it is done in heaven. We pray that you would forgive us for our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. And we pray that we would trust Christ and that knowing we are in him that we would find peace and rest for our souls. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we will now uh, turn our attention to God's word. Uh, we will look to Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30 today. We're going to consider that passage of scripture where Jesus invites people to come to him that they might find rest for their souls. This is the fourth in a series of meditations that we've entitled Encounters with Jesus. These are accounts not from the Gospel of Mark, just because we recently went through that book as a church together. These are accounts from the other Gospels. They are interchanges uh, with, between Jesus and his audience. They are parables, some of them teachings, others of them, some of them well-known, some of them not so much. This is the fourth of a series of 12 of these meditations that we plan to do uh, for the next number of weeks. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 25. Just uh, as you're doing that, I want to give us a little bit of context with respect to this 
section of God's Word in verses 16 to 19 of Matthew chapter 11. Uh, we see Christ saying things to his audience in verses 16 and 17. He says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. In other words, this generation, Jesus says, his Jewish audience that he's speaking to, this generation is like children stubbornly complaining about people not dancing to their tune that they're playing in the streets. They resist God's word and excuse it by complaining about God's messengers. We don't believe God's word. We resist God's word because the messengers, there's something wrong with them. He goes on in verse 18 to talk about John the Baptist. These people would say about John, that he has a demon. He, Jesus says this, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. But then verse 19, the son of man, that's Jesus himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So it seems that John was too austere on the one hand, but then Jesus, his style is too celebratory and welcoming toward unworthy people. Then in verses 20 to 24, Christ begins to denounce cities in which his mighty works had been done. He denounces them because they had not repented. It's pretty clear. Let's just read verse 20. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. That doesn't need much explanation from me. And then he pronounces woe or judgment upon Chorazin and upon Capernaum. And he says of Chorazin that if the mighty works done in there had been done in Tyre and Sidon, again, famous Gentile cities, right? Those cities would have repented long ago. And he adds that on the day of judgment, it will go better for Tyre and Sidon than it will for Chorazin. Then he pronounces woe upon Capernaum. And he says, if the mighty works done there had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. And Sodom, as we know, was famous for being destroyed by God because of the debauchery that existed in that city in the book of Genesis. And so Jesus is saying, if the mighty works that had been done in you, Capernaum, had been done in Sodom, it would remain until this day, meaning the people would have repented. These are strong words from Jesus, no doubt. They would have shocked his audience because Tyre and Sidon and Sodom were infamous for their debauchery and their idolatry. And yet Jesus says that it will go better for those cities on the day of judgment than it would for a number of these places where he has done mighty works during his earthly ministry. And it's in the midst of this that Jesus speaks the words recorded in verses 25 to 30 of Matthew's gospel in chapter 11. So let's now read these verses together and then consider them uh, just for a few moments. This is the word of God. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. We thank God for his word. Let's pray briefly as we are going to consider these verses together. Father, we pray that you would be with us now as we look to the Bible, that you would enlighten us and illumine your word by your spirit, that you would show us yourself and ourselves accurately in your word, and that you would show us Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. 
Well, friends, in verses 25 and 26, Jesus states that it is God the Father who has hidden these things, and these things being the things of the gospel and of repentance and of salvation. It is the Father who has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and has revealed them to little children. The Father has kept those who are wise and understanding in their own eyes from seeing and believing His promises through His Son. And the Father has, on the other hand, enabled little children, those who are weak, those who are helpless, those who are not able to do for themselves, but only to receive. He has enabled them to see and believe His promises through His Son. The statement is pretty straightforward in terms of God's working in all of these matters. But notice that Jesus doesn't just state that it's true, that his father has done these things. He thanks his father that this is the case. He says, I thank you in verse 25. And then in verse 26, he adds, yes, father, for such was your gracious will. It is the will of the father that things be this way. And that will of the father is gracious, according to Jesus. If this redemption thing, brothers and sisters, hinges on man's wisdom and understanding, we know that no one would be saved. Think of the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 27, if you put your eyes there, We see that all things have been handed over by the Father to Jesus. This is should, I think, remind us of words from Daniel chapter 7 and thinking about all things being given over to Jesus, the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 go this way. Daniel the prophet says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus has all authority and all power. We see in verse 27 as well that the Father and the Son know each other, and they know each other in a way that is exclusive. This has substantial implications. I mean, we could consider this for a long time, but just briefly, think about this. In John's gospel, in chapter 6 and verse 44, Jesus says that no one can come to him unless the Father who sent him draws that person. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So considering that, truth from John's gospel. No one can know the Son. No one can come to Christ unless the Father makes that happen. But then here in Matthew 11, we read that Jesus is saying, no one knows the Father except Him. Nobody knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So no one can know the Father unless the Son chooses to reveal the Father to that person. So in other words, we see that God the Father and God the Son are decisively acting in salvation, and they are sovereign in the work of salvation. Salvation is a work, brothers and sisters, of God's sovereign grace. That's the clear testimony of Scripture, that it is God who saves sinners. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Psalm 3.8 and Jonah 2.9. It is God who grants faith and repentance. We see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We see that in a place like Acts 11 18, where the Jews marvel that God has granted repentance unto life to even the Gentiles. 
It is God who makes us alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. And as we thought about last week, we are born again. We experience the new birth by a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Jesus compares him in his working to the wind. We don't know where the wind comes from or where it goes. You know, we hear the sound of it, right? But he's saying that's how the Spirit works. You, you don't understand. You don't know exactly how this happens, but you see the effects of the work of the Spirit. In John chapter 6 and verse 63, Jesus says that it is the Spirit who gives life and that the flesh is of no help at all. And all of this, brothers and sisters, serves to rob us of any possibility of boasting and gives God all glory in salvation. And I think that just for Christians, it resonates with us, right? Because we understand that this is how it is and this is how it should be. We, we can't boast in anything other than the Lord. We boast in only Christ. And we have nothing in ourselves upon which to base our confidence. And we know that God should get all the glory for saving sinners such as us. And this will be the refrain of heaven forever. We read these things in the book of Revelation. Chapter 5, for example, the people and the creatures around the throne of God say to the Lamb, to Jesus, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Or Revelation chapter 7. These words are fantastic. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. We will all, I mean, in the events, like the events of this week, I mean, my goodness, Revelation 5, Revelation 7. This is what God's design is for his people forever. All tribes, all peoples, all nations, all tongues around his throne, united in Christ, praising God forever. What a day that will be. John says, As after this, I looked and beheld a great multitude as I read, right from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is the clear testimony of Scripture. That's really the, the point that I'm aiming to make even here from Matthew eleven twenty five 25 to 27 is simply that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. The flesh is of no help whatsoever. Our salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. Not only does this rob us of any possibility of boasting and give all God glory or give God all glory for salvation, it also puts rock under our feet. It gives us assurance and peace that we will finally and certainly be saved. Because if it is God who has caused us to be born again, which it is, if it is God who has united us with Christ, which that's the case, if it is God who has begun the work of our salvation, we know that it is God who will complete the work of our salvation and see it through. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. It's like Jesus says in John's gospel, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Those who are given to Christ by the Father will come to Christ, and whoever comes to Christ will never be cast out. Jesus will never lose us, but will raise us up on the last day. 
It is significant, brothers and sisters, that right after this straightforward articulation of the sovereignty of the Father and of the Son in salvation comes an invitation. These things are in no way contradictory. So this is a paraphrase in one sense of what Christ has been saying and is about to say. He says, I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Father, your will in all of this is gracious. No one knows you except me and no one knows me except you. No one will know you, Father, unless I choose to reveal you to them. And then immediately, if you are weary, come to me and I'll give you rest. If you are carrying heavy burdens that you can't bear, come to me and I'll give you rest for your souls. Verses 28 to 30 are words and verses that are well known to many and cherished by many. I would count myself among that number for good reason. They are a wonderful and beautiful invitation to weary strugglers to come to Christ for rest and for peace. Jesus invites those who labor, those who work, right? You see that in verse 28. And those who are heavy laden, carrying heavy burdens to come to him for rest. Jesus invites people to take his yoke upon themselves rather than the yoke of the law, right? Or the yoke of the Jewish leaders. And in so doing, Jesus says that they, we will find rest for our souls. In Jesus' day, it was very common for Jewish leaders and teachers, rabbis, to talk about the law using the metaphor of a yoke, right? The yoke of the law was a common way of speaking. And so when Jesus is talking about his own yoke or the yoke that's heavy versus the yoke that's light, we must keep this in view, that Jesus is certainly talking about the yoke of the law and then the yoke that is his, that he is offering to people, that is light and not heavy. Jesus invites people to take his yoke upon themselves. He tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, unlike the very hard yoke and the heavy burden of the law and the yoke and the burden placed upon people by the Jewish leaders. Just a brief interjection. I know in my own experience this is true, and I trust that for many who may be listening to this or may listen to it at some point, you hear these words of Jesus, and you hear him say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you think, that sounds flat out incredible. And I believe Jesus, like I take him at his word. I believe he's telling the truth, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But that has never been my experience in the church. This burden feels anything but light. Well, there isn't time to say everything that could be said about that or even why it is the case. The heart of the matter, though, friends, boils down to the sufficiency of Christ and the nature of the gospel. The question is, has Christ saved us? Has he done everything necessary to reconcile us to God? Or is it a situation where he has gotten this thing started and then we need to do our part? Is there something left for you or for me to contribute? If Jesus provides only a part, or even if he only provides the vast majority of our salvation, leaving us to provide the rest, then we are still hopeless under the burden of sin and the demands of the law. We at CBC, we talk a lot about the way Jesus preaches the law in the Sermon on the Mount. I will often say that it's the best sermon on the law ever given. I stand by that. Jesus preaches the law and applies it to the hearts and the minds and the desires of humanity. 
He tells his audience that their righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He makes it quite clear that the standard is much higher than people even understood it to be. You understood the standard to be something in the law of Moses, but I'm telling you that there's actually a greater standard, that if you understand the law rightly, it's, it's a much bigger deal than you, you even think that it is. It's then very interesting that people would read the Sermon on the Mount and conclude that they can, in fact, do what Christ has said. If we can't even attain the external righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, how could we ever attain the righteousness of heart that Jesus prescribes? If Moses was too high for us, how could we ever stand right before this higher law? And the answer is, brothers and sisters, of course, that we can't. The demands of the law drive us to the foot of the cross where Jesus died. And the demands of the law cause us to flee to Christ for righteousness. So, in thinking about the invitation of Christ and the fact that he says that his yoke is easy and that his burden is light, it's important that we would understand that to be a Christian is not to have adequately, adequately excuse me, done good deeds and adequately have avoided vice. It is not to feel the right way all the time. It is not to be worthy of God's favor, as though we in the church are somehow better than people outside of it as that we have lived lives that would earn us something before the Lord. To be a Christian is to cast yourself completely upon Jesus by faith, who alone is our righteousness and who alone has atoned and satisfied for our sins. To be a Christian is to acknowledge that we don't feel the right ways all the time and that we are unworthy, but that Christ has paid for every failing and that we are his. Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light. How so? How so? Well, the yoke of the law is a burden that we can't bear. It's impossibly heavy. But Christ has fulfilled the law perfectly. He has met all of God's righteous requirements and he carries us. We are, in one sense, in the arms of Christ as he bears the weight of the law. So he's saying, come and take my yoke upon you. Trust me, hope in me, and you'll find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's because he's the one bearing the weight. We're in his arms as he carries us. In Adam, we were alienated from God. And we make our way back to God by means of sinlessness and perfect obedience. But our feet on that path never touch the ground because Christ carries us the entire way. I hope that makes sense. When Adam broke the covenant that God made with him, he broke that covenant of works, that covenant of creation, and thereby sin came into the world and we were ruined and wrecked and undone. It's not as though God has changed his standard. He has simply changed the way in which the standard would be met. God's standard is still perfection. It is sinlessness. It is perfect righteousness and obedience to his law. It's just that we are not the ones who accomplished that. We are not the sinless ones. We are not the perfectly righteous ones. Jesus is that. He is the sinless one and is the one who has fulfilled all righteousness. And so in Christ, it is as though we've done those things. And in Christ, it is as though we have no sin. This is all counted to us by faith. That's the good news. 
And so we will make our way back to God by works, by sinlessness, by perfect obedience, but it is not us who does that. Christ carries us the entire way. Jesus has accomplished the entirety of our salvation. As J. Gresham Machen said so beautifully, Christ will do everything or nothing. And the only hope is to throw ourselves unreservedly on his mercy and trust him for all. Jesus, brothers and sisters, invites us to come to him. Friend, if you're listening and you've not trusted Christ, he invites you to come to him. If you're working and you're laboring and you're you're weighed down and you've got heavy burdens on you and you know that you could never be good enough, Christ says, come to me, trust in me, hope in me. He invites those who labor those who are heavy laden, carrying heavy burdens, he invites us to trust him and he invites us to come to him for rest. Let's pray for ourselves that we might do just that and then we will be done uh, this morning in terms of our time together, this final, final live stream. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray for ourselves this very thing that we, even anew this morning, would come to Christ for rest that we would come to Christ for peace, that we would come to Christ for assurance, that we would lay our burdens down at his feet and that we would know in our hearts that we are in Christ's arms as he carries us back to you. We thank you for your gospel, for the news that it is, the proclamation that it is, that what is required of us has been done by Christ. So we pray that you would sustain our faith and strengthen our faith in Christ and that you would strengthen us in our inner man, that we might comprehend the love of Christ for us. We are in much need of your grace and your mercy in so many ways in these days, and we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, friends. It has been good uh, to, to consider God's word together, and we're thankful for technology that we can do this uh, in times where we are precluded from meeting, and I, along with you, am glad that... Uh, God's word will be opened in a gathering next week, Lord willing, weather permitting and all those things. So again, look for the correspondence from me and from Mackenzie uh, and potentially Joshua Vallejos as well this week about all things pertaining to the outdoor service that we hope to have next Sunday and the services we hope to have for a while after that. And email us, call us, whatever, with any questions that you have. We look forward to gathering together next week uh, between now and then. Uh, may, may the grace and peace and the love of God be with you.